Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast. My name is Mike Keenitz, and I'm a PT assistant. Today, I am interviewing RT Hill and Naraja Vora from The Stride Shop. Both are physical therapists, and they own a running clinic in Baton Rouge and New Orleans, Louisiana. So we are going to talk about different running injuries and how to work through them and different exercises you can try to fix these problems. So without further ado, here are the gentlemen from The Stride Shop. Well, welcome to the show. We got R.T. Hill and Niraj Vora. Thanks for having me. Hey. You guys are both owners of The Stride Shop? That's correct. Yep. Got, uh, we started in New Orleans and then recently opened in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So can you guys describe your backgrounds and your clinic and what type of services you provide? Yeah, you want to, I'll, I'll kick things off there. So RT Hill, I, uh, I, I graduated from PT school in New Orleans, um, went to LSU Health Sciences Center and then did a, did an orthopedic residency through University of St. Augustine. I uh, kind of bounced around, uh, as a, as a contract travel therapist for, for a little while until, uh, came back down to new Orleans and worked at a uh, baseball pitching Academy called top velocity. Where we would, we would see guys from high school up to some, some pro level athletes. And while I was doing that, I was also working in a, in a sports medicine clinic um, here in the city. That's where I met Niraj. And um, we worked together for what, two and a half, three years, Niraj. And then uh, I think we, it was one of those kind of deals where, you know, as I would, put it you you were kind of at the mercy of um of the powers that be a little bit above you more of a corporate system i would i suppose um and so as we would have two three sometimes four patients that you were seeing kind of at a time and so we got together um said you know maybe there's a a better way that we can do this where we can spend a little bit more one-on-one time with some some clients we we you get into those kind of situations and you see how another person practices and if y'all would jive very well together and it turns out we would do a lot of co-treats. And so, um, through enough, um, threats between the two of us, like, man, we're going to, we're going to break off. We're going to, we're going to start something, <laughs> something different. Uh, we started the stride shop up about, uh, three years ago, 2019. And both of us were athletes. Um, I played soccer and baseball, Niraj soccer guy as well. And we had kind of transitioned out of that into more of, well, our new, competition um against ourselves and to a certain degree other people is going to be running and we picked it up and developed an interest in that and focused a lot of our treating and rehabilitation skills towards that and so that's kind of the niche that we we targeted whenever we started the stride shop it was to let's let's get in this underserved uh, group of people that are here and kind of give them a specialized treatment plan that's maybe not a generalized uh um deal there's a lot of a lot of therapists that I think can, can obviously treat running injuries without a doubt, but I don't think there's kind of a price you can put on the number of volume of injuries and diagnosis that you see, right? If I see 20 people with shin splints, I'm going to be a little bit better when I've seen 40 people with shin splints when I've seen a hundred. And so, you know, I think we we've kind of now got to a point where, because that is the bulk of the type of patients that we see, uh, you know, we've been lucky enough to, to develop a little bit of word of mouth around New Orleans and Baton Rouge area and spend a whole lot more time, um, you know, helping people kind of all the way towards their goals. Whereas I, I can speak for myself here. I, I think in kind of the last setting we were in, I got pretty good at getting people about 75% of the way there. And it was kind of, you know, look, you're good enough to discharge. 
Um, sometimes you'd hear that they, they went out and met some goals. Sometimes you never hear from them at all. A lot of times they cycle back into the, to the PT, you know, realm kind of deal. So I think, um, we've hit a, we've hit a fun kind of niche, um, one practice model and also group of people that we get to work with and, and enjoy. Naraj, so is all this true? <laughs> you made all that up. I, I <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think he, he covered it all. We, um, you know, I think as PTs and PTAs in our, in our field, we, um, we kind of have to work with what we have. And unfortunately what we have is that, um, is that we're measured in a lot of ways by productivity rather than how much better our, our patients get in a lot of places. Uh, and we, um, we, we weren't uh, quite uh, satisfied with that. And so, um, and so we're just trying to, to provide something a little different. Yeah, I would agree. Most PTs are kind of that I've talked to lately of kind of getting out of, uh, you know, most mainstream places to work now. Yeah, I think it's a trend that we're going to see in our in our profession a lot, and um, I think healthcare in general is probably going to trend that way at some point when people uh, realize the value of, of time with their healthcare provider. And, um, and so it'll be interesting what happens with our profession specifically. But um, but yeah, you guys want to mention your website and where people can find you on social media quick before we get too in depth here? Sure. Uh, our website is thestrideshop.com. Uh, we've got uh, blogs and some free resources and a newsletter that we uh, that we think is cool. And um, we've also got an online course called um, course video series called Building a Resilient Runner that, um, that we think stuffs a ton of information into uh, some ten minute uh, segments that can be helpful for runners of all uh, of all abilities. Um, and then uh, social media, we are at the Stride Shop on Instagram and the Stride Shop on Facebook. Do you guys treat just people in person if you're seeing them? We do both. The bulk is is certainly in person, um, but we do um, treat virtually um, when need be, and, um, and sometimes when word of mouth. Uh, allows us to do so but yeah we do we do treat virtually so i was looking at your site a little bit so you guys do different you do just normal physical therapy treating runners and then also like gait analysis for running and things like that right yeah so for you knew you had asked this and i i think in my my long description of what it is <laughs> what our background was i missed on like what we kind of do so we do the rehab portion of it uh, we do a, like a performance training kind of thing. So people have kind of made it past that rehab um, stage and are looking to maybe get like a personal best or looking specifically for some running form kind of stuff. So we do strength training for that kind of thing. Some gait analysis um, is a deal we do. And then we see kind of the gambit of everything, everything else. Um, like I said, we met at a, a sports medicine clinic. So primarily orthopedic um orthopedic injuries, orthopedic diagnoses. And then I've got a little bit of a, a, a background in some chronic pain and, and kinetic neurology kind of stuff. Okay. So I think we'll get into the meat and potatoes here of all these different running issues. Um, the first subject we're going to talk about is shin splints. So shin splints are very common running injury, which can occur in the front or back of the shin bone. What approach do you guys use to treat this injury? 
Yeah, shin splints are um, uh, are a challenge in a lot of ways. Um, I think that we have to approach them with caution. A lot of a lot of what we learned, I think, as we treated more and more uh, running athletes, is is that um, we probably didn't do a great job prior um, earlier in our careers of being aware of stress fractures. And so I think that just being on the radar is a big deal. And, and bone stress injuries are this huge spectrum of, you know, uh, you starting with the least severe up all the way to like, you know, the, the black line that you see that causes, that, that tells us there's a fracture. So, and all of them need to be treated with caution, especially the ones in high risk sites. So shin splints, um, tend to be along the, the tibia, the shin bone in the front of your lower leg, um, either on the kind of outside or the inside. And so um, if we're able to first really dig into somebody's kind of uh, subjective history, so are there any um, changes recently in the volume of their training, the intensity of their training, uh, footwear, the surface that they're running on? Um, are they a newer runner? Or do they have experience with, uh, with running, all those things start to inform how we approach somebody who's telling us that they have shin pain before we even touch them. Um, and then with that, we can start to develop a little bit clearer lens of, all right, the shin pain doesn't really have any mechanism in terms of their training that spiked or anything that changed. So uh, it may be that we approach it a little bit differently. Whereas if somebody said, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, when COVID started, I just picked up running and I was up to 40 miles a week. Um, and those, you, your, you know, your radar kind of starts spinning and, and you are much more aware of something that may be uh, more of a severe case. But shin spins um, are really painful and um, and can be really kind of a nuisance. They They don't tend to, like, get better quickly. But the things we want to look at generally are um, people's feet to start. Uh, what is their callus pattern? Where do they tend to bear weight on their foot when they're out of their shoe? Um, what their motion is at their big toe, if they don't have appropriate big toe motion, that can cause a lot of issues with how they load their foot. Um, then we talk about, do you have toe dexterity? So I think toe yoga has become kind of very popular in a lot of places, but can you take, you know, your big toe and lift it up in isolation and then your other four toes and lift it up in isolation? And that's as simple as saying, can you make a fist and open your hand? Well, yeah, everybody can. As, uh, as somebody who's taken thousands and thousands of steps on run, uh, we like to see that people have control of their foot to, to efficiently disperse loads. So um, if they can check those boxes, then we start to go up to kind of um, ankle mobility, we start to look at strength of the calf and the peroneal muscles. And obviously we want to poke and palpate where, where somebody's pain is. If it's kind of this diffuse uh, pain that's, you know, kind of the bottom half of the shin, um, it leads us more likely to believe that it is muscular in nature and shin splint uh, related versus if there's this focal tenderness over one spot, um, it may make us lean a little bit more towards there being something related to the bone. And um, when we talk about the lower leg, the, the kind of anterior cortex, so that very front part of your shin is, is a pretty high risk site because it doesn't heal well. Um, 
and that doesn't have great vascularity in some portions. So we have to be really cautious when somebody says, yeah, I got these shin splints. It's re- it's been really bad. I've been able to train through them, but it's just getting worse and worse. So um, our, our ears perk up when we, when we hear shin splints for sure. How often is it actually a stress fracture? Do you have like an estimate? <clears throat> It'd be hard to put a number on it, but I, I'll say that um, it's probably more than than I would suspect. I mean, looking back before we before we started treating runners exclusively, and I'll speak for myself, seeing seeing endurance athletes, runners in the clinics, it it just wasn't something that was on my radar. I didn't think that it was something that was very common. But when you get into this population, it's more common than we think, and I think it's missed a lot. And I think that people end up in that cycle that we see where people come to therapy for a couple of months and then go away and then they're back a couple of months later. And I think, I think those are situations where we're just missing something. Um, so both stress injuries are, are more common than we think, but they also, you know, they tend, they tend, I'll say this very generally tend to present with people that have that, like things add up, something changed in their training you can tell like they have poor sleep habits or, or they have a very stressful job or they've got young kids and they, and they don't eat well. And, you know, all these things that contribute to, to more severe injuries. Uh, so it's really, really important that we dig in, not just like what shoes are you wearing and how far do you run? Um, we, we, we want to make sure we're digging deeper to give us clues um, to see what may contribute to some of those bony injuries. Oh, oh go ahead, RT. I was going to say, I'll hop in there for, for a second on this to kind of touch on what you said about, um, you know, how often we see in this. I can tell you, same, same year. I was like, I feel like I missed a ton of these over the course of it all until I started like kind of looking for it specifically. And now, I'd, you know, I'm, I'm referring people out probably a few a month that I'll end up seeing that I'm suspecting it to the point where I'm like, yeah, let's go ahead and make sure we get some imaging. Because the way that you're the way that you're treating that versus a, a muscular injury is entirely different, right? You're you're offloading that that bone tissue if you're if you're in a stress fracture type situation, um, and so now I've just become a whole lot more aware of that risk because it is a continuum, right? We tend to think of that shin splints into a bone stress reaction into a uh, stress fracture type of type of thing, um, and and when it comes to subjective things that. I think there's those certain key things that, that, you know, again, make your, make your ears kind of pop up, right? Young kid that all they do is run cross country, right? Never played any soccer, never played any kind of bounding or jumping sport or anything like that. That bone's just been stressed in one manner every day that they've ever gone out and do anything. And um, that puts them at a higher risk, right? That, that bone hasn't built that torsional kind of resiliency to to be able to tolerate those kind of things that you get with like a soccer player or a basketball player or something like that. Um, eating habits, poor sleeping habits, stress at school, those kind of things. So I would say for me personally, just the more like high school young kids that, that I've worked with, those are, those are the ones that I, I pay a little bit, not a little bit more. I pay a whole lot more attention to, to that population with it. Would you say if someone is coming off of a stress fracture and they're healed up, it'd probably be beneficial for them to try running either in different footwear or in different shoes, like their normal shoes one day and then a new shoe the next day, just to get different types of feel on the feet, or maybe do like more off-road versus on-road just to get a variety. 
Yeah, so then you get you get pretty deep into like um, uh, bone loads and and where somebody's like, you know, it may be different for somebody who's a heel striker versus a forefoot striker as to what footwear they might benefit from if they had a tibial stress injury or a fibular stress injury. Um, and then speed is really important too. So I think the difference between somebody returned to running at close to eight miles per hour versus closer to six miles per hour. The tibial bone loads decreased by about 50%. So you, you want to be aware that you're really clear in what return to running looks like for these people. Um, the hot, you know, the biggest risk factor for having a stress fracture is a previous history of stress fracture. And so you get deep into how long it takes to um, reform bone and osteoblasts and osteogenic um, exercises that, that kind of put you on the right track. But Footwear is important. And so if somebody has been in something like um, uh, a, a shoe that's minimalist and has uh, has a history of injuries, maybe you do have to start them in something that has a little bit of a higher drop um, and shifts loads a little bit away from the lower leg. Um, but, you know, it's, it's very individual um, as to how somebody – is structurally how somebody runs, where their heel strike pattern is, you know, cadence is a big thing in, in running and running injury. So um, when we talk about return to running off of bone stress injury, we have to consider lots of things. You mentioned like different footwear and that's huge. Um, having somebody wear more than one uh, type of shoe within a week, so those who wear more than one type of shoe, two or more, um, are at a significantly decreased risk of injury. So even if you're healthy, uh, it's probably a good idea to build some tolerance to different shoe and footwear types. Um, you know, we tend to see people who are like, I love this shoe. I bought six pair of it. So <laughs> yeah, because the model changes and I'm going to be screwed. Um, people are, people are trying to search eBay to find the the gym one of a, of a certain Brooks pair. Yeah. I, I say this because I, I had a guy like that earlier in this week. It's like, yeah, I found three pair. From some guy in Ohio, I bought all of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes those people are okay; they never have a problem. But, um, but yes, I think that um, being tolerant of different stresses on your foot and lower leg and whole body in general are great. In terms of surface, um, I think it's also you know important to recognize that like running on a treadmill um, will increase the load at your lower leg and ankle versus getting outdoors. So. Uh, somebody with an Achilles injury or shin splints, um, I'm probably not prescribing their return to run on a treadmill versus if the other option is flat outdoors um, on the sidewalk. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of variables to consider. Sure. Are there any recommendations for like just someone at home if they have shin splints, like exercises or stretches you guys would recommend? Um, I'll, I'll hop in there for a second. Niraj touched in at the very start of it, talking about like a that foot control, right? That toe dexterity and that ability to to manipulate the the foot and having a sound, you know, communication signal from the from the brain to the foot. And I'm going to give a plug to a uh, to a tool that we use a lot, and it's called a Mobo board. Um, created by a guy named Jay DeSherry from here in New Orleans. But essentially it's similar to like if you've used a fitter board in the clinic that goes eh, plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, or inversion, eversion, this puts it on uh, an angle that strengthens into pronation, supination. 
and it has a hole cut out where your toes would go. So you have to anchor down with the great toe and you stabilize in that plane of motion, that control um, in pronation, supination. And so that is, man, I can't tell you how many of those that we've, we've suggested to people and, and we're, we're incorporating in a ton of our, or at least I am incorporating into a ton of my, my treatment protocols um, that I have for people. I think that's one of the best things for it because there's so many different varieties of different balance drills and things like that, that you can do on it. Um, and you see those individuals that try to bypass, bypass um, uh, the, the shorter muscles bellies that are on the bottom of the foot. What they'll do is they'll, they'll claw with the, the, the flexor longus uh, muscle group. And when you do that, it creates a more rigid midfoot. And so you hit with more force and that force has to go somewhere. And a lot of times it's in the shin. So, all that to say, this board, I feel like, helps to, one, establish a good foot control along that great toe and the, and the, the, the true foot supporting muscles on the, on the bottom of the plantar surface of the foot. Um, so that's kind of where I start a lot of those individuals at. I've never seen a board like that. <laughs> yeah. Huh, yeah. Interesting. Man, it's fantastic. All right. I wish we got some money for something like that. We don't. <laughs> you gotta work out an affiliate with them come on guys. yeah we should i should work out something mobile if the guys, you the guys from new orleans we could probably we can talk about old you know watering holes or something around here <laughs> <laughs> all right the next top is that good for shin splints or you guys have anything else no it's great okay we yeah. will go on to heel pain when running so heel pain is very common among runners and even non-runners so what is your approach to working with someone who has heel pain? I'll, uh, yeah, I'll jump in there. So um, I think first thing to kind of consider and, and be aware of is that not all heel pain is, is the same deal, right? There's a lot of differential diagnosis that can happen in that area. For instance, um, insertional Achilles, right? So where the, like, the Achilles tendon actually inserts into the bone, um, you know, that's a, that's a, different treatment and, and different approach than someone who has like a plantar fasciitis or uh, a fat pad displacement or like a retrocalcaneal like bursitis or something like that. Right. So um, the approach needs to be individualized. And another one of those that I feel like gets kind of lumped into that heel pain or Achilles tendonitis is again, is it an insertional or is it higher up more in the tendon or the muscular tendinous junction? Um, we mentioned before the way that you treat a bone injury is very different from the way that you would treat a tendon or muscle, right? So in one of those diagnoses, the, when it's more in the tissue, you want to load that it needs that tension across it in order to, to build up more resiliency and build up if it's where it's on the bone, right? We're trying to unload that a little bit and just give it a breather so it can go through its inflammatory cycle. And then you can progressively get back into it. Right. So, um, the initial approach is, again, it's, it's it's not all of it's the same. So you got to work on your skills and seeing multiple people with different types of heel pain helps with that that kind of process instead of just putting it under a an umbrella umbrella term. Um, in terms of how we then go into the, the differential diagnosis and and some of the um, objective things that we look at. Similar to stuff you see with, with shin splints, honestly, a lot of, do you have toe dexterity and display? What's your ability to, to activate the, uh, the digitorum brevis musculature? Um, how's your peroneal strength? 
Um, if I just have someone standing there, you know, and make them actually bring their attention to the bottom of your feet, like where is your weight distributed? Because I, I, very few people that come into the clinic, if I say, where's your weight on the bottom of your foot right now? There's like bottom of the foot. And you have them start thinking, all right, well, is it, is it on the heel? Is it on the back portion of the heel? Or are you hanging out towards the ball of the foot? Are you hanging on the right side? And very few people I think have this volitional awareness of like, where am I actually putting my weight on a day-to-day basis while I'm just standing for, for hours at a time. Right. So, so part of it is bring some, uh, some attention to, to that kind of thing. Um, and then it's, we're, we're going to test it. I want to know what you can do. Can you go a double leg heel race? If you can do that, fantastic. Can you do a, a single leg heel race from a flat surface? Fantastic. If you're able to do that, well, then let's put you in a little bit of a deficit and see if you can active, activate and that, that tissue can tolerate it when it's got a little more force on it. If you start going through those criteria-based, right, and you can prove at different segments of, of, of rehab or, or during an evaluation that you're able to, to do those kind of things, then we kind of know, one, how serious is it? Where is... A, where is a lot of that pain potentially coming from? Um, and then we have a good way of gauging, well, is it appropriate for you to actually get back to running, right? If you're not able to do a single leg heel raise, it's definitely not fair for me to be like, well, go try a quarter mile and see how you feel at the end of it, right? So that that goes into to us, and I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, like what our criteria is for someone to get back to, to running. Um, for me, uh, being able to do a, a series of some single leg heel raises is, a, is an important part of that. Sure. Is there any... It, it's too individualistic, I would say, to recommend anything, you know, at home for people to try. I mean, besides a test you just discussed. Well, I think that there are things that you can try, but there are things that you probably shouldn't do. And I think traditionally, in a lot of clinics, and, and uh, I've been in these clinics and I've done this in the, in the past, it's like everybody with pain on the bottom of their foot is treated uh, for plantar fasciitis. You roll it out. Uh, you do some toe curls on a towel or you pick up some marbles and drop them in a cup and, um, and then you get massaged and, and that's, uh, and we stretch our calves and we hope that stretching, right? Yeah. We'd hope that that treats your heel pain. And, um, you know, in fact, kind of grabbing a, a towel or picking up marbles with your toes is kind of doing the opposite of what it kind of reinforces a lot of the patterns that probably led to heel pain you're starting to use those long toe flexors that run up into your shin and, and cause shin splints in a lot of cases. Um, when in reality, we should really be training to use those short toe flexors of your foot. Um, and if massage and stretching um, feels good, I think it's great. I don't see any problem with it, but I, I think we treat plantar foot pain or heel pain way differently than we do in the rest of the body. We don't just hope that uh, we stretch something and it kind of goes away over time. Um, I think we need to treat it just like we would uh, a quadriceps strain, right? Like after after symptoms are calmed, we we want to make sure that quadricep is really strong. And so, how do you make the bottom of your foot really strong? And so, you know, the exercises that we start to have people do are again one: start with the toe yoga. Two: we can add a band to the lesser four toes and have people just push down with their band. They don't grip with it, but if they can push down. In the proximal joint, then you start activating the flexor digitorum brevis and you get, um, you almost feel this crampy sensation right in the middle of your foot. It kind of tracks along the bottom of your foot the same way the plantar fascia does. And so we have to reinforce it. 
Um, and then if people can tolerate it, like RT said, we get into those single leg activities, but we cue really, really hard that you're going to use your big toe. You're not going to grip at the ground and try to find stability from your, from your lesser toes. You're going to keep that, that foot tripod, we call it, under the little toe with all the big toe and the heel um, as, and have some awareness, like RT said, of what your foot is doing as opposed to um, just trying to pick things up with your toes and, and, and stretch things. And stretching it. Yeah. Do you guys have people, as long as it's not acute, do you have them try to like spend time maybe being barefoot or you know less cushioning shoes just to naturally strengthen their foot up then? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, the way that I, I tend to present this to, to clients that come in is if you think of the, the bottom of your foot as an antenna, tells your brain, hey, this is the surface that I'm on. This is the... This is the angle our foot's turning at. This is the way, here's how the support is at the, at the bottom of our foot. Um, the stronger that signal is, the, the better, right? And the best way to get that is to get as many pressure points, as many, as many tactile points on the bottom of that foot as possible. Because that's more data that the brain has to use to, to say, to develop a, a connection between the, the head and the foot. If you're in a shoe, um, it has a really high stack height, right? That now that space from the brown from the ground to the bottom of the of the foot has this kind of dampened surface that it has to, to make its way through. So you're you're kind of putting the the brain and the foot at a little bit of a disadvantage at that point. So for most of the people that, that I treat, we do a lot of the stuff barefoot. So yeah, that that's I kind of had when I first started running again dur during COVID, <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was having some kind of, it never bothered me besides when I was running. And then later on, I started getting into more flat shoes and minimalistic. And I don't have the problem at all anymore. I was lucky it wasn't like ever terrible, but uh -huh. that's just what I didn't want away naturally. And for our listeners, I think that was a dog in the background, sorry. not some. <laughs> sorry. That's fine. <laughs> At first, I was like, "What is that?" It's just, it's just, just a dog. Don't worry. Just a dog. Um, no, I, I think you know. It's, it's not that there's one way to treat heel pain, but I think that there's there are bad ways to treat heel pain. Um, and you know, there are also we see clients all the time where people have plantar fasciitis, and their and their provider or whomever they go to see tells them. You just, you should never walk barefoot because it'll hurt too much. Or, you know, you can't wear flip-flops ever. And like you said, maybe in an acute case, we aren't just telling people to, to go, you know, walk on the beach barefoot when they've got plantar fasciitis. But um, we're not in the business of having people like avoid things for the rest of their life for fear of having their pain return. If we can do things the right way, you, you should be able to do all those things. Right. Yeah. I, I have an uncle who, uh, he's overweight, middle age and every, every two to three years when I see him on Thanksgiving, he's always talking about his heel pain coming back. <laughs> he loves, uh, ultrasound. <laughs> yes. yes. And his super cushioned shoes. <laughs> yes. When, when he says it to you, he says it not like asking for therapy advice, <laughs> but just kind of putting it out there in case you want to willingly give it to him. Yeah. He was upset last time because yeah, that, that his, his new therapist gave him um, Ayanto, or no, his new, oh, what's the uh, little medicine they put in? I can't think of what it's called. Yeah, that's right. Ayanto yeah, 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 they he get, they gave him that, and he's like, no, I want the ultrasound. <laughs> he got, yeah, that's yeah, great. Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up. 
so I think we're going to get on to strength training for runners and why runners should do strength training. Cause back in the day it was not recommended. So what do you guys recommend for strength training? All right. I'll jump in on that one as, as well. Yeah. So, um, that, that tide has, has turned, uh, you know, it used to be, if I'm a runner, I just need to run and that's all I need to do. And, um, I, I think that has now become, um, pretty well documented and pretty well shown that runners need to be doing some form of strength training. Uh, not just from a performance standpoint, if you want to run faster and have a better running economy and run longer, strength training is going to help for that. But then, you know, while you can't say, well, this is the, this is 100% going to ensure that you don't get an injury. Strength training helps to build a resiliency in your tissue so that you are able to take on more of a load and more activity without overloading your, your bones and muscles and, and joints and, and things like that. And so I think uh, runners that are out there that are only running and, and never strength training, um, they're missing out. I think they're, they're putting themselves at a, at a huge disadvantage um, for those reasons that I said, right? Improve running economy, reduce fatigue, um, bone health, improved anaerobic endurance, right? Improved max speed. And, uh, and it helps to break up a lot of times the monotony of just, just running all the time. So I'm for it. I'm all about it. Anything you'd like to add to that, Naraj? Yeah, I think, again, we think about this sometimes uh, in a weird way, like, you know, uh, a pitcher, uh, a baseball pitcher or a, um, you know, uh, an offensive lineman, um, they strength train. Right. They, they have demands for their sport and they strength train. And the same applies to running. There are demands. The sprinters strength train. Uh, endurance runners should strength train in some sense. Running, you know, it's one of those things where, it's, you know, beginners for sure, like the more you run, you see these huge uh, changes right away. Right. Not right away. But as you start in, in, into running, maybe you can run farther. Maybe you can run faster as you start training. But running um, from the sense of outside of performance is we talked a little bit about bone running's not really an osteogenic, a bone forming activity. Um, and so if you're just pounding on bones through this one form of input, um, you may be, you probably at higher risk. We know you are as a high school athlete. Um, if you specialize as a runner, you're at much higher risk, seven times more likely, I think to uh, sustain a, a bony injury. So, um, you know, from a viewpoint of healthy bones, yes, you should provide some resistance training. And the same applies to tendons, because if all you're providing is this kind of moderate plyometric input to tendons, um, you're not going to be um, sustaining tendon health uh, the way that resistance training would as well. So um, it's like trying a different pair of shoes. It's like um, any athlete that trains doesn't spend a hundred percent of their time training in their sport. You don't just, uh, a pitcher doesn't just keep throwing and throwing and throwing until they get better. Right. So um, I think we just need to approach and look at it a little differently than we do. Do you guys have any recommendations of like some basic exercises people should do if they're runners for strength training? Yeah. You know, I think we, we have kind of a, a recipe, uh, template that we, we start out with most of our runners, uh, or anybody who kind of comes into the, 
clinic, not just runners. We, we do some, some specialized stuff for runners, but basically you're going to do five primary movements, right? You're going to push things. You're going to pull things. Uh, you're going to do some form of a hinge, uh, squat, and then carry. Um, and so then when it comes to runners, we're specifically going to then do some type of focus on some single leg activity and making sure that we're hitting the calves as well. Um, and that is something in addition to all of the toe yoga and the mobo balance and, <laughs> and all those kind of things that we've, we've mentioned already, but yeah, I think, I think if you can put together a push, a pull, a hinge, a squat and a carry some form of single leg and a, and a calf exercise, you can have so many different varieties of, um, workout routines that then it's just a matter of, from a physical therapist standpoint, um, appropriately progressing those, those exercises and those movement patterns. Once someone has proven that they have the, the capability to, to do so. Um, I think it was, I think it's Dan John that, was, that says that, you know, 80% of your training should be geared toward your sport. So about 80% of your training should be running. Um, but then 20% should be dedicated to, to getting, getting stronger. So if, if runners can get into the gym a couple of days a week, um, that's a, that's a pro. That's a yeah. Win. Do you got, so you typically recommend like two, three days a week for runners? Depends. Um, if, if someone, <laughs> I know there's depends a lot of mileage and time, I suppose. Depends on mileage time. Are you in the middle of, right? So say someone's in the middle of a training cycle for Boston marathon, New York marathon, something like that. If they're in the middle of a training cycle, they're, their focus needs to be more on, on running and hitting some, some metrics that they want to there. So we'll have someone do maybe one, one day a week uh, of training during that time or like a strength training. Um, you know, still focusing on mobility work and, and stuff like that. But we probably take the strength training a little bit lighter during that cycle. But if they're then in the off season and they're not training for a specific race, well, that's a great time to let the body recover from the repetitive motion of running and really build up some power and some strength. So then we're going to recommend, well, let's try and get you in two to three days a week um, and try and build up a little bit more um, muscular power during those times. So it's, you know, it's, it's where you're at in your training and, and that kind of deal. But if you're just in a, in an off season or you're not necessarily looking to run a race or something like that, two days a week, two, three days a week. Do you guys recommend like during the off season? I know some people they'll focus more on like lifting heavier during the off season and like more repetitions during in season. Is that what you guys kind of do? Yeah, I think generally speaking, um, it's probably a good way to go. I think that as your volume of running decreases, it's a good time to focus on your strength. As your volume of running increases, uh, it's a great time to maybe um, dial back in the weight room and focus more on um, some mobility or some mechanics, things on one leg, stability, quote unquote, stability exercises, right? I think it, I think that that's uh, a pretty smart way to go about it. Um, I think our team mentioned too, um, that when we work with runners, not only those forms of, of exercise, but if you want to boil it down to the simplest thing, it's that runners um, mostly are going to use their quadriceps, their calf muscles, and their lateral hip. Um, and so if you've got somebody coming in saying, give me three things to train, 
we don't do an exam. We don't know where, you know, maybe you need the most work, but generically speaking, I mean, I think that if you can train those three muscle groups, um, you're probably going to do pretty well. Right. Yeah. I, I, I've gone back and forth between running and being a meathead lifter. So I'm kind of <laughs> stuck in this in between. I'm like a very bulky for a runner, but well, you're kind of one of the the lucky ones, though. I think, uh, right, because you're willing to go in and, and lift heavy weights, which I think can be super intimidating for, you know, for someone who's never done it before. And, you know, then Niraj and I come on to a, to a podcast or, and say, yeah, you need to get out there and start deadlifting. Right? Yeah. One of the best things that you can do for it. And, and someone's like, cool, going to do it. What's a deadlift? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I, I, I hope that, that more and more people runners specifically get comfortable doing that. So then there's more people to kind of guide you, guide you into it. And I hope more therapists start realizing that yeah, this is something we need to be doing right. Ideally the end of, from a physical therapy standpoint, the end of your rehab should look pretty, pretty similar to what it would look like if you're going to the gym. That's the main goal, right? Is to be able to set you off into the wild and and go in there and, and, and do all those kind of things. So, you know, I think we got to take it on our, on ourselves as PTs to, to get trained up and, and feel comfortable in teaching the mechanics of, of those types of things and, and helping get runners into those positions in a safe way right. where it's not as intimidating. I, I would mention it's very, we're not talking about it today, but it's very important to work on your flexibility and mobility too. Cause I neglected that this last year while training for marathons. And my hip paid for it. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I've been focused on it now, but. Yeah, there's only so many hours in a day. It's like, what do you spend your time doing a lot of times, right? And yeah. um, It's very much a moving target. You know, like you said, if you spent a ton of time marathon training, maybe you didn't have time to be in the gym as much and you didn't have time to work on your mobility as much. And then, you know, you get past the marathon and you reassess and you realize, you know, I've neglected this and so I'm going to spend more time on this. It's, it's a moving target. There's not one recipe that's going to work for everybody. And it's not one recipe that the one person is going to work from year to year. You know, I think it's important that we reassess those things too. All right. We, uh, we, so in new Orleans, we, we work out of a gym with a, a guy's name's Brian Adams with Cypress fitness. And he is, uh, so he's a, he's a personal trainer, but he, he's got this extensive martial arts background and and does some things when it comes to mobility to your point here mike of um just really cool really profound things and he has all these sayings like these like analogies and he gave one the other day i'm gonna rip it off from him right now but he was because he was talking to a musician he's like you know if you're a musician and you can play three chords right on a guitar that means you can play songs that include those three chords and only those three chords same thing if you have mobility that's limited to this small amount. If you have this much mobility, you can only do activities that require that much. But if we teach you more chords, now the solid in your song library gets wider and wider. And if we give you more mobility and we strength train or we train those joints in that new mobility, now you have the, all these additional activities and positions that you can get in and be there safely. And I, I thought that was, you know, for us down here, I was like, God. That. One day I'm going to come up with something like that on my own. That makes, that makes <laughs> good sense in my head. I, I yeah. play music, but I do drums. I don't do guitar. But yeah, if I gave you one snare drum, <laughs> I want you more drums play than that. One snare drum. 
Yep. We're going to talk about IT band syndrome now. So I kind of have a tight IT band, so I guess this relates to me too. Um, so what is your approach to IT band syndrome? Yeah, I mean, IT band syndrome, again, is, um, is one of those things that's, I think, probably approached in a million different ways if you walk into a PT clinic. And, um, and I think that there are things that, like you should never foam roll. Other people are saying you should always foam roll and um, you should stretch your IT band or there's no way to stretch your IT band. It's useless. And, um, and I think that's fine. And we're very much evidence guided as opposed to like, you know, this is what the research says. So that's the only thing we're going to do. I I've, myself have gone back and forth between uh, foam rolling, not foam rolling, foam rolling. Uh, it's pretty painful and sometimes it's uh, useless, but I think it has its place. If we can do something that um, it's helpful, I, I, I think we should absolutely use it. But really, I think we're going to approach it the same way. We do most injuries to start. You get a great history of, of what has led to this. Has something changed in your training? Do we need to adjust volume, or intensity, or frequency? Um, do we need to adjust your surface? Um, have you been running a ton of um, downhill uh, or, you know, have you just recently changed surface where you moved and now you're in this hilly place and all of a sudden you don't have the tolerance for it. So running, um, running a track in one direction. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, running on the street. So, on one side. Yeah. Uh, um, and so, you know, you take all these things into account. I think generally speaking, IT band uh, related treatment is going to consist of us uh, making sure we train your quadriceps really well. Uh, eccentrically, uh, as well as concentrically. We're going to train your lateral hip muscles quite a bit. Um, and I think a lot of times we forget about what the foot and ankle are doing. A lot of times the foot and ankle create things upstream, and and, um, and we forget about what's going on with the foot and ankle that may contribute to, to IT band pain. Um, so we have to address those things. And then we want to watch you run. If there's this, you know, kind of heavy crossover pattern with your feet where you know, you're, you're crossing side to side um, with your feet. It's it's a kind of a simple cue where we want you to create some some width in between your feet to offload your IT band a little bit. Um, and then if you are rehabbing from an IT band injury, uh, you probably would do well to start um, on an incline. So maybe you do start on a treadmill. Um, it just decreases the force of the, the quadricep and the knee flexion angle. Um, a little bit. So, um, you may start uphill and then progress to flat ground. Would you say most people, so I've heard people experience IT band pain by their knee, but I've also heard at their lateral hip. What do you guys normally see? I think they're, I, I mean, we see both, right? Yeah. And I think, I think you're dealing with kind of the same thing. It's the same tissue, just in a different location of where it's creating the, creating the pressure at or the compression at. Um, lateral hip, you, you know, I think you can differential diagnosis is it, well, is it a issue or bursitis? Is it a bursitis on the lateral portion of the hip? Um, but that's running underneath like the tissue that eventually turns into the IT band right there. Um, down by the knee, uh, a lot of time that's one of those deals where the, the knee for, for all intents and purposes is a pretty, pretty simple joint, right? It's hinges back and forth. It has a little bit of rotational stuff, but um, for the most part, it's just a hinge. So you look, 
above or below the joint upstream or downstream to, to see what's going on there. Um, and with runners, I think a lot of times looking at the, looking at the foot is probably where I'm going to, going to start at there. But um, in, in terms of where we see it the most, I, I'd say it's about even for, for me. Um, you know, personally, one of the ways that I'll, I'll tend to get in there, you'd mentioned like the, the gate analysis Niraj and looking for that crossover pattern kind of what I'm looking for a lot of times in that, in that gate analysis is how much actual like spring does someone kind of have, right? Are they kind of bounce uh, off of the ground or is it more, are they just kind of shuffling the feet forward? Um, and, and what that's kind of telling me there is if someone's just basically just kind of shuffling and puttering, you're just pulling it kind of the top of that, top of that hip up there. And um, that just creates this, this disconnect or this, this imbalance where, we start pulling that IT band forward a little bit more, which can then translate a little bit further down the, down the hip. So for me, I want to see someone that's really, really creating that, that spring out of the Achilles, absorbing energy, expanding it. They've got some good posterior chain activation that's propelling them forward um, type of deal that you, that I would want to see um, out of someone that, that that's dealing with an IT band issue. Yeah, I would say a common thing amongst a lot of runners and probably me last year because it was the first time I did heart rate training. So mm -hmm. I had to slow down my gait. And I think I was just really lazily running. And mm -hmm. I think I was shifting more laterally versus engaging my buttock. Yep. So all that prep force, sure. uh, you know, 20 miles in is just going on your hips. So your butt where it's supposed yeah. to go. Yeah. So I think that's what causes a lot of like IT band syndrome and lateral hip pain and runners yeah for sure you know it, it, running is you, you think okay well, i'm just going on there that's the that's the plane that i need to to train in and and like i said you you have these muscles on the outside of your hips niraj mentioned it earlier the the hip abductors a lot of muscles that, that's keeping your pelvis level and so if those get weak and pelvis lifts up on one side and now all of a sudden your knees taking this sharp angle to the inside that's going to put more compression both up at the top of the hip and down at the, at the bottom as well. Right. So you're absolutely right. that That's one of those root causes that needs to be fixed. And again, going back to, you know, the foam rolling conversation of, is it right or wrong? Um, you know, I think it can be, if it's being used to help with some acute pain that allows you to, to decrease pain so that you can go and work your muscle in a larger range of motion, to fix a root cause, then I think that's a, that's a great way of, of utilizing it. But if you're using it as kind of the way to cure your IT band pain, it's probably not going to be very effective in the, in the long run or the long term. Right. Okay. Yeah. That your explanation makes perfect sense. Cause after my last marathon last year, I did two, Bob checked me out and my pelvis was elevated on that painful side. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, I'm stretching it out. Now it's a lot better. Plus, I'm not running like that much anymore. But yeah, it's it's all linked. Yeah, <laughs> which is it's it's kind of sad because a lot of people like you and other PTs been working with are looking at the body as a whole instead of like just treating individual areas. Yeah, I think it's um, you know, in the 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 questions too is once we see somebody in clinic, so. Somebody checked you out after the marathon. Is your is your pelvis elevated because in response to some of the pain you were having, and and there's some compensatory um, shift or pattern uh, because of the pain, or did that lead to the pain? 
and, and sometimes we don't know because we didn't have it before and after, right? Um, but we get to treat what we see, um, and so you know, you, you do you do attack it, you do adjust it, and usually that's lateral hip. And, and I think to to touch on like shuffling versus springiness, um, I think we have to be like also very careful what we relate cadence to in terms of springiness or shuffling. Because um, some athletes who, myself not included, uh, who just are very athletic or came from a different background than the running, that you just see them and they're just like, you know, they're, they're almost like jumping along and, and they're just have a lot of this liquid RT talked about kind of this up and down, but it's not coming from just their calf. Um, but they've got a very low cadence uh, versus somebody who's shuffling and has a higher cadence. I think I say that to mean cadence, a uh, higher cadence typically will offload the knee. Uh, so we don't want somebody like bouncing up and down crazy, uh, but we do want somebody who isn't also just dragging their feet and has no flight time, right? So there has to be this kind of in-between, um, which is what I think R2 is getting at too. Yes. Yeah, and you're talking about more like people that translate vertically versus forward propelling themselves running, right? That's what I'm... Yeah. That's the point I was trying to make is someone who's propelling forward versus yeah. someone who's bouncing up and down. All right. Let's get, since we have been talking about hip pain now, we'll get onto the hip pain subject. So what approach we'll say, we'll say lateral hip pain, because if someone has like groin pain, that's the hip sockets. We'll say outside uh, hip pain. So what approach do you guys use? I'm assuming it's kind of similar to what we're talking about for it band. Similar first ruling out a stress fracture, right? You want to talk about high risk areas that, that if you've got a stress fracture in the area, uh, it needs to be addressed quickly. Right. So I think first, the first thing I'm doing there is, is trying to, trying to rule that out. So go, you know, your that subjective, uh, evaluation, that subjective data that you're, that you're bringing in is you can't put a price on it. It's so important when it comes to lateral hip pain kind of stuff. Say that all goes well and you, and you clear that out, then it's a matter of going through, you know, the exams that, that you learn as a student PT school and some, some stuff that you pick up along the way, which is what is your hip range of motion, internal to external rotation ratios or total hip range of motion. And then uh, has that hip and has that, that tissue been, stressed in each of those planes, right? You may have a really strong glute max, but if I ask you to get into a side plank, you can't hold it for more than two seconds, right? So super strong in one direction, but you have no ability to, to stabilize in this plane right here, right? So then it's a matter of, well, let's find a way to, to load, progressively load that tissue if it's, a, if it's muscle, muscular related and build up that, that resiliency so that it can, can tolerate longer runs and faster runs and different surfaces that you're running on. Um, that's if it's from a muscular standpoint, a little bit different if you're, if you're dealing with like a, like a FAI or like a labral tear or something like that. But still, then again, goal is probably going to be initially let's stabilize the hell out of the entire, entire joint and, and go at it from, from that approach. See, so do, do more like isometric cool. strengthening with hip abductor stuff then. Uh, RT does a, a good bit more than I do, and I think it's really effective. I don't know why I haven't picked up on it this much. But, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Or he does a good bit. Um, you know, when you talk about lateral hip pain, I think uh, what you had mentioned earlier was also kind of this um, glute med or glute min tendinopathy with the lateral hip. Um, and so, yes, of course, the subjective history is like RT said is gold. I mean, you can't you can't uh, shortcut that. Um, and when it comes to rehab, um, you also can't forget some of the things that we talked about before, like this crossover gait may be a factor. Um, I've spoken with people who are like, I sit all day and um, they sit with their legs crossed, right? So you go out and run and you train and you do the right things. You side plank, you, you know, you do your, your lateral step down and all these things. And then you sit for six hours with your leg crossed and you're just kind of pulling at that tendinopathy um, and serving to just make it sensitive and irritated. Right. So, um, so little things may matter too. Um, but I think what RT talked about is loading that tissue. We know that, you know, tendinopathies, tendinitis, um, what you may call it, uh, respond really well to, us challenging the tissue. So whether that be by starting with side-lying hip abduction and then moving into a standing hip abduction and then a standing hip abduction with some resistance and then um, lateral walking with a band or a lateral toe tap um, and then into a side plank. Um, you have to progressively load that tendon. And also when you think it's good, that's when you've got two or three more months of, of work to do, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because as we know, as soon as it starts to feel good, all of us stop stop doing what got us there. And the nature of tendon is not that it has, you know, it's, it hasn't restored its normal uh, properties. Um, you know, that you know, the collagen being a major player is, is, is degraded a bit when you start to experience those symptoms. So um, I think setting expectations is, is something that we, we try to do well is that, look, I'm going to, you know, maybe we'll get you to where you're running and running the volume and intensity that you want, but I'm going to see you back in this clinic in three months if you uh, think that you're going to stop doing your exercises and be okay because um, lateral hip pain, tendon-related tendon lateral hip pain um, takes a lot of work. Yeah, I would say it's it's annoying because it never hurts you when you're doing the exercises or the running. It's that night when yeah. it hurts when you're trying to go to bed yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, I overdid it. And then I think I'm good. And I try to do something harder and then I'm back to square one for like a week. Yeah. yeah I mean, tendon pain is, is very much of that nature too, right? You have three good days and then all of a sudden you're hurting uh, and you don't know that you did anything different. And I don't know that there's a great explanation for those. I'd be making it up. If I said it, but I think that's just the nature of tendon rehab is that, it's very up and down. The trend should be that it's getting better if you're doing the right things, but you're still going to have those days where you just are pissed off because it hurts, you know, um, and you don't know why. Do you guys let, so depending upon someone's, um, if they're antiverted versus retroverted, meaning for our listeners, the way their femur sits in their hip sockets, if it's forward or backwards, do you guys look at their gait and just kind of let them, do what they naturally want to do with that or do you try to change it? Yeah, I, I, um, I think that there, there are lots of things that uh, we don't know about the hip, but what, what we do know is that 
um, anatomy can be very different from person to person. And even within, you know, Mike, you may have two very differently shaped uh, hips, um, the acetabulum and the size of your femoral head and um, uh, the angle of your femoral neck may be different from one side to the other. So when, when we see people with, you know, kind of this uh, windswept pattern where like both feet are turning one way or the other way when they're running, or they're very toed out or something like that, um, the inclination may be, well, that just looks weird. Let's get it straightened out. And I, um, I think that's probably one of the last cues that I'm going to use um, as a Hail Mary if nothing else works, I, I, um, I think that people kind of selective, selectively move into these patterns based on their anatomy in a lot of ways. And we're not going to change your anatomy. So um, it would probably just create problems if we try to quote unquote straighten you out. Yeah. I, when I was in PT school or PTA school, I was taught, um, you know, you should walk with your toes ahead and I'm naturally somewhat retroverted. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started running that way later on. And then I'm like, now how do these, injuries yeah. and i was talking to pt and he's like why are you putting your toes straight he's like you sit down you're retroverted he's like quit walking straight he's like you're screwing up your own anatomy and i was like oh it's like i yeah. never thought about this that's one of those things you have to respect and be aware of too whenever someone's lifting right yeah Weight training as well like you're saying right you're not going to go in and you know that you have this much more open space to get into a deep squat when your feet are pointed out a little bit so talking about for you personally you're not towing your towing in whenever you're getting in there and squatting because then you're just kind of jamming in on that joint right yeah so that's about the only time where i'm i'm making active suggestions on kind of foot placement and and angles and stuff like that but uh for for running form rarely am i changing the form necessarily I, i'm letting that be a result of the mobility and the strength training that we're doing and kind of letting the, the running form fall in line afterwards. Okay. Well, do you guys have anything else to add on hip pain? Uh, it's, it's kind of those, kind of those, those giant <laughs> broad ones that we, we could probably sit here and, and, and do a long talk on, on a lot of different diagnoses on it, but no, not in particular. I, you know, I think, I think we've, we've hit on it time and time and time again, is that subjective history is such an important thing when it comes to running related injury and honestly, any kind of rehab in general, because a lot of times the, the pain that you're having in one place is a result of something and it's happening someplace else that a lot of times that patient or client has kind of disregarded as a secondhand thing, but is a really valuable piece of information that needs to be addressed and needs to be fixed in order to, to unravel kind of that entire um, knot that's, that's causing the issue that they're, that they're having at the time. Sure. Well, thank you for joining me today, gentlemen. You can find them at the stride shop.com. Thanks Mike. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having us.